Good morning, Crossroads family. How are we? Awesome. We're excited to be in our um, study here in 2 Peter. Uh, We're in chapter 3 this morning. I came across a quote this week that I thought was very relevant to our situation uh, in the days in which we live. And I wanted to read it. I wanted to start this morning with that quote. And this is what it says. The darkness grows thicker around us. And godly servants of the Most High become rarer and more rare. Impiety and licentiousness are rampant throughout the world. And we live like pigs, like wild beasts, devoid of all reason. But a voice will soon be heard thundering forth. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. God will not be able to bear this wicked world much longer but will come with the dreadful day and chastise the scorners of his word. Does that sound like a word from someone who lives in our world today? It does, doesn't it? But um, guess who this quote was from? It was from a man who lived nearly 500 years ago. This man's name was Martin Luther. And it was from the year 1546. You see, uh, we have been living in a world in decline for some time. It is nothing new what we're experiencing today. It is only uh, growing more and more evident that we live in a world that is in hostile opposition to God and his rule and his authority. And this morning... um, We need to turn our eyes towards heaven. And that's what the author here, Peter, does for us in his letter to the church. He wants to get our eyes off of the here and now, off of all the problems that we see in the world, and he wants us to lift our eyes up onto the King of Kings. And so this morning is an encouraging message. This morning is a message of hope. I think of what the Apostle Paul wrote in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. He says these words, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Amen? Amen. This morning's message is entitled, Return of the King. Return of the King. Peter has thus far in his letter to the church, he has covered certain topics. I want to review them with you. First of all, he wanted us to understand as God's people, as God's church, what is our divine calling in Christ? Do you recognize that you were called by Jesus? You were set apart? You were adopted into his family? You were elevated to a position of co-heir of all the heavenly blessings that were won through Christ's victory at Calvary? He has called you. He has set you apart. Do we recognize that? Do we appreciate 
the calling that we have in Christ. Number two, Peter wants us to know that we have access to God's power and God's promises. You know, without God's power in our life, we are helpless. We are, we are in danger of giving in to the temptations and the tactics of the enemy, Satan. We can't stand on our own strength. We have to tap into the power that is available to us through God. And we have to rest in his promises. Every one of his promises is yes and amen because of Jesus Christ. We can count on it. It's, it's a sure, it's a done deal. Do you have faith? Do we operate in the hope of his promises coming true? Peter wanted to remind us that we can count on God's power and God's promises. Number three, Peter wanted to remind us that God's word is dependable. God's word is dependable. It can be counted on. It is the thing that we need to go to to build our lives upon. It is the rock on which we stand. Do you depend on God's word? Do you believe it to be true? Do you stand upon it in every moment and decision that you make? Do you consult it when you're lost and you need direction? Peter wants the church to know that God's word is dependable. Next, Peter talked about, and we've just looked at this the last two weeks, that we need to be on our guard from deception. That there are people, there are people that are trying to deceive and, and get us to take our eyes off of Jesus and put them onto something else. To believe and to begin to trust in things that are not of God. It's deception. And it's rampant in our world. It's even rampant in the church, unfortunately. And we need to be Bereans. We need to be on guard. We need to evaluate and examine the scriptures and make sure that what we're hearing from the pulpit, on the TV, on the radio, wherever you get encouragement in the Lord, that, it, that it's coming from a place that's consistent with the truth. We need to discern that. We need to rely on God's spirit to help us. We need to rely on God's word to help us not be misled down destructive paths in our lives. And now Peter turns his attention, as I said, to the fact that Jesus' return is for real. I want you to imagine Peter as he walked with Jesus for three and a half years and he heard him teach. He saw him raise the dead. He saw him perform miraculous deeds. He saw him walk on water. And he was in the upper room on the night in which he was going to be betrayed. We just looked at that. Pastor Kurt led us through that night when he was enjoying a, a final Passover meal with his disciples. And in that moment, in John chapter 14, he said these words. You, you trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. I'm going to prepare a room for you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. Did you hear that? Did Peter hear that? Did the disciples hear that? Absolutely they did. And in the next 24 hours, they would watch their master, their savior, 
their Messiah bleed, be crucified, be nailed to a cross. Their hopes were dashed. They didn't understand the entirety of the plan of God. They were still wrestling through what it all meant. And three days later, they realized that nothing could defeat their God and their Savior, Jesus Christ. He rose from the dead, and he reminded them of all the promises that he had made, especially this one, that I'm going to go away. I'm leaving you with a mission, church. I'm leaving you with something to do, something to be consumed with, something to give you purpose and meaning in this world. And one day I will break through the noise, the mess, even the the skeptics and the scoffers and the silence, and I will break and pierce the clouds with my presence. I will be coming for my bride, the church. And this is what Peter writes about here in chapter 3. He turns his attention over to this topic. And if you would, and if you, you can, please stand in this moment as we read this passage that Peter writes in, in chapter 3. Verses 1 through 9 this morning we're going to read. And this is what he says. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires, and they will say, where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in a quick prayer as we begin to dive into this this morning? Heavenly Father, God, I just thank you for your word. I thank you and ask that you might enlighten our hearts this morning to your truth. God, challenge us in ways that we need to be challenged. God, speak into our lives. Provide us with the perspective that you want us to have. And God, more than anything, submit our will to yours. God, we, we ask that you transform our thinking, you transform our hearts, and you transform our wills to be in submission to yours. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much this morning. Peter begins this section by saying these words, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. 
where he had written before. Well, there's First and Second Peter. We're in Second Peter. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Why did Peter write the church? Why did Peter take the time to put pencil or maybe pen to paper and spend time to write these letters to the church? What was he trying to accomplish? He tells us right here. Number one, he wants to remind us, he wants to remind them, the church, of the truth. Do we need to be reminded of truth, church? Yeah, otherwise, why do we gather on Sundays? Why do preachers get up here and open up the word? Because God knows we need reminders. In the Old Testament, he had provided festivals. Every, every few months, there'd be a festival. Every few um, uh, seasons. Every, every Saturday was a Sabbath where they would gather at the synagogue. They would open the scrolls of Scripture. And they would be reminded of God's truth. We need reminders of God's truth. Peter knew that, and so he writes the church to remind them of the truth. But why do we need to be reminded of the truth? He says it right here, to stimulate wholesome thinking. Now this word wholesome comes from a word that means sincere or uncontaminated. Sincere or uncontaminated. It comes from a Latin root, sene serra, which is without wax. This word is very interesting because back in, in Peter's day, there were people who would sell pottery or sculptures in the marketplace. And one of the taxic, tactics that they would use is there were blemishes from creating some of these sculptures. Or maybe they dropped it and it cracked and they kind of glued it back together. There were things that made this not as, as good as it should have been or what the price tag said that it was. And so what they would use is they would use wax to cover up these imperfections. They were basically being deceptive. They weren't being sincere, as this word suggests. And so when you went to the marketplace to buy something, one way that you could tell that you were buying something that wasn't sincere was that you would hold that piece of pottery up to the sun, the sunlight. And when you held it up to the sunlight, you could tell where there were parts that were, the sun would shine through, showing you that that was like a crack, that it had just been covered up with wax. And you realize, like, that's not authentic. That's not real. That's not genuine. This is a piece of junk that was dropped or that was, wasn't created right. And it's just been, it's been trying to be passed off as authentic. I'm not buying it. And so the people of that day would consider a piece of pottery that was authentic, that was worthwhile as being sun-judged. Sun-judged, because they could tell I had held it up to the sun and it was without wax. It was sincere. This is the word that Peter uses. He wants us, he wants us in the church to be men and women who have been sun-judged. We've stood before the sun not the S-U-N, but the S-O-N, the Son of God. We're not trying to cover up our imperfections with a bunch of wax. We're not trying to deceive others, but we are truly presenting our lives before God and saying, God, you change me. 
You work on the imperfections. You build me to what I should be, a perfect workmanship of yours that is not trying to be deceptive. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. Paul talks about this idea. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Peter wanted his readers, he wanted the church to be sincere in their thinking, to be wholesome in their thoughts. We can only do that when we allow Christ to judge the thoughts of our heart and our minds. God wants his people to have sun-judged minds, not those in which the sin spots have been waxed over in an attempt to conceal them. How? How can we do this? He continues here in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 2. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. What helps produce wholesome thinking? What is it that provides the basis for which we can be sun-judged in our thinking? Well, it's the writings of the holy prophets. The Jews believed that all scriptures were written by prophets. Moses was called a prophet in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. They considered Joshua through the, through the kings, the former prophets, that's the classification they gave those books. And then you have the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. And then you have the minor prophets, Hosea through Malachi. All of the Old Testament was considered prophetic by the Jews. And so Peter addresses that. And he says, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets. What is he referring to? He's referring to the Old Testament. He's referring to the part of our Bible that we call the Old Testament. Genesis through Deuteronomy. Joshua through the kings. Isaiah through Daniel and Hosea through Malachi. And then he says, I also want you to recall the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. What is Christ's commands through the apostles? What is that in our Bible? That's the New Testament. That's the New Testament that reveals to us Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, written by the apostles, the commands of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What does he want us to be doing? What is it that we are to build our lives upon in the church? And then the apostles wrote the rest of the New Testament. Letters, instruction to the church. Peter says that is how you can have a sun-judged mind. Wholesome thoughts. Right thinking. If you, if you focus and you devote yourself to the word of God. Christ's command through the, new, the apostles. This was an idiom referring to the gospel. The command of the Lord and Savior it's related to the idiom, the law of Christ, that's found in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. What was the central command given through the apostles 
of what Christ wants the church to be and do? Well, there's two things. Number one, be light. Be light. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, you are the light of the world. You remember Jesus said that? And secondly, be love. Be love. John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you are to love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus gave us lots of commands. You can read through the New Testament and you can read the numerous instructions and commands that God gave the church, but they really boil down to two. Be light and be love. Peter wants his readers to be focused on the truth. Why? Because he's just talked about all throughout chapter two that there are deceptions that are trying to win your mind. And win your heart. Don't let it happen, church. Verse 3, above all, you must understand that in the last days, now Peter talks about the greatest deception that is being thrust upon the church. You must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. I want to talk about what Peter means by the last days here. The last days. What is he referring to? Well, first of all, he's referring to the period between Jesus' first and second coming. That entire period is referred to in scriptures as the last days. When Jesus left the earth and he said, I will come again, we have a period of time that we now continue to live in. We're in 2022 of what? A.D. A.D. is Latin for in the year of our Lord. We continue to be between the appearance of, the, of our Lord and Savior Jesus the first time and the thing that we all hope, our blessed hope, his return for the second time. This is where, where we find ourselves today. And as the years click along, we are only growing closer to the reality that Jesus promised, that he is coming back again. Acts chapter 2, verse 17, Peter said these words at the birth of the church on Pentecost. He said this, he was quoting from the Old Testament from Joel chapter 2, verse 28. He said this, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. That happened that day. God poured out his spirit on Pentecost and 3,000 people came into the church. Amen? Amen? That's what happened on Pentecost Sunday. Who was there preaching? The very man that we're reading from. The very man who's addressing us today in this letter. Peter. The apostle Peter was there. He's the one that quoted Joel. He's the one that saw God work and transform the lives of 3,000 of his fellow countrymen who surrendered their life and received Jesus as Messiah, as Savior that day. It's also uh, the period preceding the day of Christ. In the last days, there's going to be several days. One of them is the day of Christ. What is the day of Christ? 
Philippians chapter 1, verse 9 through 11 talks about it. Paul says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. What did Paul say the church should be focused on? Love. That your love may abound more and more so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. The day of Christ is coming, amen? Amen. That is gonna be a blessed day. The day of Christ is talked about in 1 Thessalonians chapter four. It says, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with the shout, the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ shall rise. And those who are alive and remain in the church in that moment will be caught up together in the clouds. Caught up is the word we we refer to as rapture. That's what that word means, caught up. To be raptured, to be taken, to be with Christ. It's a day of hope. A day that we should look forward to. A day of salvation and deliverance from all the mess that is this world and this life that we know. The day of Christ is coming, but the period preceding the day of Christ is called the last days. It's also the period ending in the day of the Lord. Not only is there a day of Christ, but there's a day of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 13 verse 9 speaks of this day of the Lord. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. You see, the day of Christ is a day of hope for the church, but the day of the Lord is not a day of hope. It's a day of judgment and wrath. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, the verse that Pastor Kurt's going to pick up next week. I'm going to spoil a little bit of his sermon, but it's at the end of the passage that I'm going to finish today. It says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with, by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. You see, the last days are the days we're living in. We could call the last days what what is referred to as the church age. It's that period of time where God redeemed for himself a people. And he brought them together, both Jew and Gentile, as one people, the church. It's the church age. but But it precedes the day of Christ, and it precedes the day of the Lord. That is the last days that Peter refers to here in in verse 3. It's right now. It's the time in which we live. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. Verse 4, they will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Who are the scoffers? Who are the scoffers and what do they do? Scoffers are those who disregard God and his ability to supernaturally intervene into our lives, into our world, into our situation. That's who the scoffers are. They're those who are unbelieving. They're those who are saying there is no God. And if there is, he's just inept. 
or he's distant, or he doesn't care. That's who the scoffers are. What do scoffer, scoffers do? Scoffing, the word scoffing there, means to mock or to ridicule. Now, I've been a Jets fan for many years. I know what it's like to be scoffed at for believing that my Jets could somehow be 6-3 and three this year, defeating the Green Bay Packers and the Buffalo Bills, but people still scoff. Well, here's what I want to say, that we serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's undefeated. We should have nothing but confidence in that. Amen? And we will go out into this world and we will be scoffed at for having allegiance to Jesus. But let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Scoffers mock God and his son Jesus. Scoffers make fun of those who believe. And scoffers merely focus on what they think will bring them happiness in this life. And that's their own evil desires and their own fleshly pursuits. Jude, verse 16, Jude was the brother of Jesus, and he wrote these words. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you in the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. A scoffer is someone who, ta- who treats lightly what we ought to treat seriously. That's what a scoffer is. The people in Noah's day, they scoffed at the idea of a flood. Did they not? They scoffed at the idea and the preaching of Noah, who said, get on this ark, because God's about to rain down judgment for your sins. And they scoffed and they laughed until the day that the rain fell. They had never probably seen rain, torrents of rain. They had never seen the upheaval of the earth and all the waters being unleashed all at once until it was too late. Just because we haven't seen the things that God describes that is going to happen to this world doesn't mean that God can't make it happen. Scoffers scoff at the idea of Christ's return. Why do these people scoff? Because they want to continue living in their sins. I don't want the reality that God portrays. I want to do my own thing. And so they scoff at those who believe in what Jesus said. Verse 5, But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Isn't it amazing how the so-called thinkers of this world, your scientists, your philosophers, even your liberal theologians, they'll selectively and deliberately ignore evidence just to reach a conclusion 
that suits their heart. Will they not? I mean, they can see the evidence of things like a flood and, and that something was created out of nothing. How in the world is that possible? And yet they will ignore the fact that there's a God behind it all. Because that doesn't suit what their heart wants to pursue and be accountable to such a God. What evidence do scoffers ignore? First of all, they ignore creation. God created the universe out of nothing. Ex nihilo is the Greek. Out of nothing. Can you imagine creating anything out of nothing? If you give me nothing, I'm going to have nothing. You give God nothing, and the whole universe comes to be. That's the power of our God. Psalm 33, verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. God created the heavens and the earth by his word. The phrase God and God said occurs nine times in Genesis chapter 1. And God said, let there be light. And there was... God's word is powerful, is it not? God's word is effective. Not only was creation made by the word of God, but it is held together by that same word. Peter's argument is obvious. The same God who created the world can also intervene and do whatever he wishes with the world. Amen? Amen. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 27, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? The second fact where God supernaturally intervened that scoffers seem to just ignore is this, the flood. There's many other facts, many other times where God intervened, but Peter just highlights two for us here in his letter. The flood, God suddenly brought disaster on the wicked in the past, and he can do it again. Jesus said so himself. Listen to this. Luke chapter 17, verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. You remember the day of Christ that we talked about earlier? The day of the Lord. That's what's being referred to as the day where the Son of Man is going to have his day. And it will be just like it was in the days of Noah. People were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage up until the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. If God has the ability to do it, the scoffers were ready with another argument. Then why doesn't he do it? Why is he delaying? Why hasn't he come yet? Peter, you're saying he has the power to do it. What's he waiting for? Yeah, right. He ain't coming. That was the argument of the scoffers of that day. And maybe you've experienced that in your own life. Why the delay? Verse 8, 
But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Why is Christ delaying his return? Peter gives us a couple reasons. Number one, God isn't on the same clock as you and me. He ain't on our clock. He invented the clock. We operate on a clock, but God is outside of time. Psalm 90, verse 4. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Peter's really quoting the psalmist here. He's saying, God, I understand you are not on our timetable. You're way beyond our timetable. You live in eternity. And you step into moments of our time in order to accomplish your will. God could have created the entire universe in an instant, but he took six days. Why? He could have delivered Egypt in a moment, but yet he preferred to wait 40 years for Moses to go through his wilderness experience until he appeared to him at the burning bush. Why? He could have sent the Savior at any moment, but he said at just the right moment, he sent his Son into our world. While God works in time, he's certainly not limited by time. Amen? Number two, God's apparent delay is for mankind's good. It's for mankind's good. It's for our good. It's for our world's good. God cares about people. God gave his life for people. He is patient. His love is patient. Aren't you glad for his love? Aren't you glad for his patience? He wants everyone to choose life. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, and 1 Timothy chapter 2. Listen to 1 Timothy 2 first, verse 3 and 4. God our Savior wants all people. How many people? Wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth but he won't violate your free will. He gave you free will. He wants you to know him. He's done many things to draw your heart to an awareness of him. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. All we have to do is look up and know that there's a God. But many times we're too busy being blinded by our own selfish ambition. To acknowledge him. He sent his son into our world. Our world's been rocked by that event. It's been shaped by that event. Our own calendar is based on Jesus coming into the world. And yet, people ignore him. People find a way to dismiss him. God our Savior wants all men to be saved. 2 Corinthians 6, 2, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Paul argues, what are you waiting for? There is grace right now. There is an opportunity that you have right now to respond to who God is. Don't wait for his patience to run out. Don't miss the day of Christ, because then you're going to have to face the day of the Lord. 
Now is the time of God's favor. His heart breaks for you, for me, for this world. He wants us to come to repentance and a knowledge of the truth. This is the only place where Peter uses the word repentance in either of his letters. But that does not minimize its importance. To repent simply means to change one's mind. To change one's mind. Remember how he talked about sun-judged minds, wholesome thinking? Peter gets back to it right at the end of this section where he wants us to change our mind. It is not regret, which usually means being sorry that I got caught. Nor is it remorse, which is a hopeless attitude that can lead to despair. No, repentance is changing your mind. It's an act of your will. When the sinner honestly changes his mind about sin, he will turn from it. When the, when the sinner sincerely changes his mind about Jesus Christ, he will turn to him. God wants us to turn away from sin and wickedness and rebellion and turn to the Savior. That's repentance. Have you done it? Have you done it? Don't wait. Now is the time of God's favor. Let today be the day of salvation. As we close this morning, I have a few application questions that I want to leave you with. Number one, are you a scoffer or being influenced by one? God's message to you today is stop it. Stop scoffing and turn to belief. Stop being influenced by those around you who are scoffers. And stand up and say, I believe. You can mock and ridicule me. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, if you expect to be my disciple, you think the world's going to treat you any better than they treated me? No, certainly not. If they mistreated our Savior, they're going to mistreat us. We have to be ready to be Jets fans. But our Jets, the heavenly Jet, is a lot better than the earthly ones. I can tell you that. Are you committed to wholesome thinking? Number two, are you in a habit of having your mind renewed daily through God's word? Start a new habit. Maybe it's five minutes a day. Maybe it's, as, as I know, some of my friends who read until God finally stops them in their tracks and, and says something to them through the word. Whatever it is, are you spending time with God daily? Allowing him to speak into your mind to be sun-judged in your thoughts. Are you committed to wholesome thinking? Number three, are you investing in things that will be consumed by fire or the things that will last forever? You heard it, there's gonna be a day of the Lord. Everything we see that is temporal is gonna be consumed in that moment by fire. None of it's going to last. So if that's the case, why are we spending so much of our time, our resources, our energy, our hobbies on things that are just going to burn up? I'm not saying we don't spend any time on it. Certainly God has us enjoy the temporal, right? But where are we placing the majority of our resources? Where are we placing 
the primary aspect of our time with things that will last forever, investments into other people, into our family, into our friends, or in things that will be consumed by fire. And finally, do you share God's heart toward those who have not yet come to repentance? Remember, they are what we once were. They are where we were once at. Don't look down on them. God's being patient with the scoffers right now. Do you realize that? And at one time, maybe you were a scoffer. Do you have a heart towards those people? Do you have God's heart towards those people? What is God's heart toward those people? It's love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Do you love them like God loves them? Remember, who had God's heart towards you when you were a scoffer, when you were in your sin? Aren't you grateful for them? Aren't you grateful that they were patient with you? I know I am. I am. Let's pray. I'm going to invite, um, I think it's John and Melissa are going to close out with some announcements. But let's pray. Heavenly Father God, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for your message of hope. Your reminder, God, from Peter, one of the most amazing men to walk this earth. Thank you for the letter that he wrote us, the challenge that he gave us, the encouragement that there is a day coming, a very hope-filled day for your, your bride, the church. God, help us to live in anticipation of that day. God, and while we're here on earth, help us to be devoted to your mission, having your heart, and setting our priorities around the things that you want us to be and do as your people. God, dismiss us this morning in your grace, but with the challenge that maybe there's some area that we need to be judged by the Son and that we need to make some corrections. Help us to be faithful in doing that as we bow our will and our heart to yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening this morning. John and Melissa, can you guys come up and uh, tell us what's coming up?